Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. So grateful that you're here to join us for another garden, landscape, design, care themed episode of this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's been really fun to do it. And we love dreaming up new topics and hope that you're enjoying hearing from week to week. If you're new, thank you for joining us and giving us a try and hope you go back and listen to some of our catalog and (laughs) you can always let us know what you think. It's great for commuting, travel. Yeah, absolutely. And what you'd like to hear. Um, nice to think about gardens when you're behind the wheel of the car, stuck right. in traffic or on the train. I've experienced some of those heavy commutes. So I am one of your co-hosts, Kate Sadler, and I'm here with our other co-host, Charles. Good to be here. Charles Sadler is our resident design and landscape care expert. I am your resident non-expert. <laughs> but the benefit of that is that I I'm able to ask the questions that I have about landscapes, which hopefully translates into beneficial information for anyone who may not know as I don't know some of these guidelines. And along those lines, today's episode is actually about professionals, knowing your landscape professionals and whom to call when certain situations arise or when a project is beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you figure out whether a landscape architect is needed or somebody who has licenses to apply pesticides. Right, <laughs> there's a, quite the range. There's a general contractor, engineers, arborists. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap. So it can be one person. There's overlap, and it depends on what the client's goals are, what their comfortability is, mm-hmm. if they want to be very hands-on, or maybe they want someone really to manage everything and to supervise and hire others. Well, and I would say also as a, as a couple who have a landscape design practice and have started our internship program, so we get an intern each month. I'm so sorry, not each month, for about a month or two in the summer. There's also an element to this podcast, I hope, for people who maybe aspire to work in the landscape profession. And so understanding the distinctions among the roles and, and how one might fit in or where, where one's interests may be channeled best is one thing we hope you might gather from the information presented here today. So you are a landscape designer and a certified arborist. Right. And we've talked in a previous episode about what it means to be a certified arborist. So if we may touch on that again today, but for those of our listeners who would like a a really detailed understanding of how certified arborists care for trees, head back to some of our earlier episodes. Right. <laughs> Maybe the single digits. Yeah, we're starting to get <laughs> enough, enough that I'm, I'm forgetting the actual numbers, which was something I was able to do earlier on. And so how do we understand the management of the landscape? I mean, it's really almost deceptive because... Well, maybe to me, again, I don't know how many of our listeners relate when I share as being a non-landscape person. There's almost this taking for granted that the landscape will tend to itself, which is absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. Or, I mean, it will, but it will in the sense that it will grow the way it wants to grow and things will move in that want to move in. Correct. To maintain a landscape with the aesthetic intention that human beings are placing on it takes tons of work. Correct, right. Like guidance. So what are some examples of 
intensive layers of landscape professionals working together that may even be beyond most like surface awareness when we're enjoying those landscapes. Well, we can use Central Park as an example. That's often people often understand that. One of my favorites. It's so easy to say that, but having worked in New York City and getting to walk in that park most weeks that I was working was just such a pleasure. I mean, it's so, so wonderful. So for anyone who hasn't traveled to New York yet and gotten in there, definitely make that a destination. Mm -hmm. That was really that initial plan. I think it was called the Green Swords plan or something, Green something plan. And so the concept was that it was going to be a restorative place and that Mm -hmm. it put, might have even been the designers of may even have like had a transcendental background, you know, with Emerson and Thoreau. I'm not sure about that, but that the restorative power of nature. So now there's science that says, yes, nature is restorative. <laughs> so to create that restoration, some of my graduate studies was in how wilderness is the most restorative of, I guess, of the plant communities. So there's a design landscape, and then there's a wild landscape. So Unless you live in the wilderness. So the wilderness is not so hospitable to live in. So that's where the design landscape can be near places where people live or in urban areas. And if you've listened to us at all, any of our episodes, we often talk about uh, having a program that our, we certainly have like an ecological approach to how landscapes are managed, but, and having preserved wild spaces that are ecologically beneficial to wildlife is just a very, very important part of general land management, in, in mm-hmm. my personal opinion. Right, I agree. But that in many places, even national parks, there is a human interaction. That's some of the benefit or something that even makes human beings unique, perhaps, is this ability to appreciate the landscape in a unique, interactive way. It's important to think about how human beings are going to be able to use the land. And again, in a way that's sustainable and supportive of other species and things like that. Right. So I think of Central Park as, a, as an example of how all these professions come together to create. There's conceiving of a landscape. There's a creation of it. Then there's the maintenance of it. Then there's often the repair and the rebuilding of it. Mm. Would it be, if, if you think of a of a long period of time, that, that would probably be longer than a human life, those three periods. <laughs> so in the creation, some of the professions, like now there's a, the planning profession has sort of separated from the landscape architecture profession, but those used to be together. Words, planning is in civic planning? Correct, right. Okay, So sure. that used to really sort of like Warren Manning was designing many. So I think his work was in the early 20th century. Might have even started, he interned, I think, with Olmsted. So there's, planning, which is on a regional civic scale of where a park will be. And so that still occurs now where they're thinking of transportation, where people live, how they get to work, green spaces. Well, I suppose the High Line would be a good example of that, that there was a structure that had been used for an entirely different purpose. And then there was a planning to turn it, to convert it into a park. And certainly some of that would have been almost like civil engineering to like how people are going to access that park where do you build i guess the stairs that will take people up to the railroad trestle or whatever you know that's going to house the park so so when they were conceiving central park i i know that it did mean displacing people that were living in the region and so you are taking like a balance of what is the good as you're building these civic spaces so there's you know so politicians are often involved like city council members, mayors, 
And so those roles are often revolving. They're not, not a permanent role. So there's people that are hopefully representing the people. And then there are professionals, landscape architects that are involved, landscape designers. Well, landscape architecture, there's licensure for that. So that's depending on the state you're in or the country. Some states like Vermont, they did not have licensure. I don't know if that, that's changed. So it's not every state doesn't actually have it. But there is, so it's the, the Board of Education of the state oversees the licensure. And so that's just to ensure standards so that when spaces are created, that it's safe, that there's a standard, just like with an architect or an engineer or someone that's building a bridge or a highway, that there's standards. And so for public and civic spaces, those standards, that's very important. When it's on a residential scale, like the work we do, some of it's commercial, public, a lot of it's large scale residential. So that I'm not a licensed landscape architect, I'm a landscape designer. So the, there are times where, like for if we did have a need for construction drawings, let's say that something's going to be constructed, we would hire an engineer. So that so there's a lot of collaboration and overlap. There's landscape architects that are well known. I mean, I guess it is, you know, kind of what I was getting at in this idea that a landscape is somewhat static. It has more to do with like if you think of Central Park, you think of who designed it and you have Olmsted and Vox are the names that sort of resonate as the historic designers of the park, mm-hmm. but they're not the only people involved in it, obviously. Right. They've, they've long since passed away, so they're not involved at all anymore. And of course, they sort of mapped out the course of how this park would be, but there's this ongoing participation that we have in our landscapes, so and they, they are by no means static. And as you're suggesting, the engineers who maybe come in and help assist with the planning process it's not just the big name landscape designers or landscape architects kind of crafting everything on their own. It takes a lot of, of collaboration. Right. I mean, the, sometimes the, these lead designers, I mean, sometimes we're the lead designer. I think the lead designers can, can get undue credit in a way. And there, I mean, I think sometimes I'm like the hood ornament. It's like people might see me, I'm doing some of the work, you might get some of the praise, but there's this whole vehicle, this whole engine, all these moving parts that are, which are responsible. So there's arborists. So that might be, there's a climbing arborist, someone that's going to climb the tree and prune it. There's like a supervisory arborist that would be supervising tree work or tree planting. There's a consulting arborist. So that would be someone that's the product they produce would be, could be supervision. It's often our report based. So they might back in when Central Park was created, I don't know that there were consulting arborists exactly, but I bet someone did a survey of what trees are on the property with those existing grades. Some of these trees, might, they might have been a beautiful old hickory tree. They say, let's save that. And then engineers, I mean, their role is often constructing structures, assessing if a structure is safe, like the High Line. That was in, an existing structure for an elevated railroad. And the origins of that, the railroad used to be at grade at, on the same road as you have horse carriages. And there were a lot of injuries and fatalities. And that's why they raised the railroad for human safety. So an engineer would assess, is this defunct railroad trestle, how safe is this? And then what amendments do you need to do to make it safe? Well, and as you mentioned, there's this interaction between the landscape and the external landscape, whatever that is. So in the case of New York City, it's you know Central Park West <laughs> and oh, right. how people <clears throat> enter and exit the park and, and perhaps more importantly, from a civic planning perspective, how all the taxis are going to race across 
you know, at the different <laughs> arteries <laughs> that let you from, cross from east to west and west and back again. And that that interaction, there's an interplay right. um, that's important and is not maybe the purview of a landscape designer or landscape architect. There's so much specialization in the 21st century. So there's a traffic engineer, a safety engineer, grading, drainage. So there's, then there's plumbers, electricians. So even on some of these residential projects, there's a lot of trades. Someone that puts this, the uh, cedar shingles on, that's all they do. They, they're great at doing that. So the collaboration, the coordination is very important for things being efficient. Your project management is a big right. part of what you might hire a landscape design or architecture firm to do. So they would be the ones to identify an interface with the engineers. Like they're still speaking the same language to a certain extent, but it's you're hiring these firms to step in and handle the project management in essence. Right. We saw that um, like a firm we've communicated with some Reed Hildebrand that's out of Massachusetts. And I think New Haven, they have a small office there. So now that we're in Houston, there's the Houston Arboretum that we've enjoyed. And so that was more or less like an overgrown invasive woodland. You have all kinds of you know, Japanese species of plants like uh, hollies, barberry. So it was non-natives. For that project they worked on, they worked with another firm, I think it was Design Workshop, and it might have been a wildflower consultancy too. So there are some projects that are so complex, and even our projects, it's complex enough where sometimes we're hiring specialists. There's the firm in the Philadelphia area, Larry Weiner, who specializes in meadows. So we've consulted him, and then sometimes we are the consultant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. So in a place like Central Park, I know firsthand, I've trotting around the park on my lunch hour, observed volunteers, I believe, although perhaps Mm -hmm. there are paid, you know, New York City has a department of parks and they have professionals that work for them. But people in the beds actively plant, rooting things up and planting new, new plants. And so there's, because we're dealing with plants, which are living organisms that are sort of set around these landforms and hardscaping, you need people who are at the very granular level are basically gardeners. Is there a different title for that role? A gardener would be a correct role. Some of the head. So a gardener might have some hands-on training and experience. And then there's a horticulturalist, which would, could also do gardening. They might've had some formal training or may have had a lot of formal training. And as I understand it, there's even there may even be, especially if you're thinking of doing this as a professional yourself, or if you have a property that's large enough to accommodate the different roles, there are the professionals who specifically put together the annuals beds oh, or containers, that that's their specialty. They're mixing colors, they're mixing textures. This is what they do. Then there are horticulturalists or designers that perhaps work with perennials primarily. Mm-hmm. And so they're helping fill out other beds. Then you've got the structural designers who are interested in things like trees and shrubs to kind of give a little bit of architecture to the space. And I would imagine as a, as a general landscape designer, you'd know how to do all of that, but um, it can be a real art to do a container, annual container or the annual beds. And there are people that actually specialize in that. Right. I mean, to have, when you get beyond a basic level, to have all the specialization, well, I often suggest that when I'm meeting with somebody and say, we could do these, like you need three services. We could do those three. If you want it to be even at a higher level, we're really good at this one service. We're great at this. (laughs) If you want the most amazing planters that 
every three months are changed out and they look whether it could be a commercial space, private, it could be a club, a school. Yeah, someone that that's all they do. What do you think of like in a restaurant? You know, there's there's the chef, there's someone that's making the sauces, someone that's just making the pastries, someone that's just making the bread. And so that if all you do is make bread, it's going to be some probably amazing bread. <laughs> it's going to be at a higher level than if you're doing it all. And so it depends. So on projects, there's projects where we scale up, we hire other consultants or we team up with others. And there's projects that are, the needs are pretty basic and we can, we can accommodate them. And that's even true for some of these international competitions. Maybe it's a park in another country. And sometimes it's like two or three firms, large firms will apply as a collective hmm. and that it's so complicated that all the time that it's so complicated that, you know, where it's, if it's a product that's going to go on for many years, and there's also ecologists, soil scientists, wildlife biologists, hydrologists mm-hmm. that would do everything with water. So depending on the scale. And so some of those professions are those people may be consultants or might be a firm that does wildlife consulting or that does ecological consulting. And so that, so the scale of those really vary. It could be one person. It could be a dozen, an ecological firm that has a dozen people. Some of the larger firms that would be, let's say, 50 people or more, 150 people, they might have someone on staff that was an ecologist and a soil scientist. And so you might, I mean, so if we're talking about the the average home, the average garden, you certainly may still want to seek out the services, especially of somebody who tests soil. That can be a really important place to start. And there's often people, you mention land grant universities all the time. I don't know if there's a way to reach out to them and see if they do soil there sampling. Is, that's pretty com- that, that would be pretty consistent throughout the United States that you could send a soil sample in a Ziploc bag, more or less. You know, they, they would tell you, they'd say, gather so much. And then in terms of weed and feed, are there people who are licensed to apply certain fertilizers? Yeah, so, so fertilizers and... An organic fertilizer, generally, that's not regulated, but a chemical fertilizer that's more powerful, there is a oversight of that. It's so like a pesticide applicator license that could be applying more powerful fertilizers and all different types of pesticides, herbicides. And so we're often consulted on landscapes that maybe do show signs of certain fungi or pest interactions. And you're certainly very often capable of diagnosing it. And making suggestions, some of which are like the organic interactions, but it's also important, I think, for you to then have people on call that can come out and and apply the, I mean, the different chemicals. We're not saying like spray everything aggressively, but some things do need to be treated or they'll run amok. Well, that term that's been around in IPM, integrated pest management. Mm -hmm. So that's like you're treating things as needed. You're not, what used to be done is you'd spray everything all the time. All of these, you know, these old photos of these clouds of gas that, you know, this truck mm-hmm. going down through the park, spraying everything. Have a, <laughs> have a small airplane fly over your property every now and again. So having, I mean, when I, when we're consulted, I try to have the person that is the most skilled, have them, it's, a, it's the most efficient. You're going to, it's going to be done right the first mm-hmm. time. It's cost effective because it's their, you're just, you're applying or doing what's needed, but not more. So mm-hmm. if you have a company that's a general service that does everything, they're probably not great at everything. They might have a specialty. And so sometimes it doesn't matter. It's sufficient. And so there's the, you know, there are national companies. So depending on where we are, 
it, it's recognizable. That's I use that. But then someone that's a licensed landscape architect, certified arborist, that's a registered consulting arborist. That's also there's organizations to find skilled people. So again, you're sort of running into the concept of for certain projects, depending on the scale, you're reaching out to a professional, typically a designer or an architect, just for the sake of having project management, which may include organizing things like the transplanting and tree trimming to be followed by the plant care health plan being developed and then additional maintenance as the, as the garden develops. And there's like the hardscaping element too. So that could be, maybe it's removing old hardscaping, putting new in, or if it's new construction. So that would be a general contractor often, be a mason, other, there's other construction trades. So doing things in the right sequence is important. You know, putting in the conduit, so you put in appropriately sized pipes, let's say, that you'll then put what, like your electrical could go through that. So you'll have, say, a walk or a patio or a driveway, and that you don't have to say, oh boy, we need to get electrical. <laughs> There's a driveway there, more or less depending on the scale of and the complexity. I think in some of our episodes, as we're kind of describing like the design process and the planning, it's this ability to see the layers that are going to go into a space because you're essentially, as you've described it before, design is problem solving. And so if you design a landscape that has lighting in it as, as a component, you have already thought through these issues to right. try to make sure so it's there's covered. Landscape lighting, and it often depends on what quality do you want. So mm-hmm. the landscape contractor could often install the plants, install the irrigation, install the lighting. Now, do you want that lighting to be pretty special? Then there'd be a landscape lighting company. Do you want this to be the most special lighting that you've ever seen that's stupendous? Then there'd be a landscape lighting artist, you know, someone that is going to, it's all installed and then they're really tuning it. They're, they're there at night. Okay. What's the most, the best angle. And that's really true of all the professions that there's, mm. and sometimes it changes too. It's the landscape is installed. Maybe there's no lighting initially or there's no fire pit, or, or there's just a gravel path. And then over time, well, we really need to widen this. Let's have a, a bluestone path and let's have lighting. Now, I know that one of the things you specialize in in your practice is boxwood as a species. It just mm-hmm. so happens that that's a, a, you work a lot with hedges, privet, yew, taxis. Beach too, So hornbeam. Uh, I mean, are there people who are like, the rose experts. And so if you're a rose enthusiast, you would call them if you're having issues or if you need training for pruning. Is that, do you suppose that there are specialists out there of that type? Oh, there are. Yeah. For plants, like I think that's called a rosarian. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the, and there's someone like at the New York Botanic Garden, which has written a book on ferns. It's like a fern specialist. So the, within a community, someone that really specializes in that. Like we give, we give talks, you know, and we do, we publish right on Boxwood. So someone is often visible that really specializes in that. So local botanic gardens, maybe they teach a, a class. So there is, I guess, specialization. And there's that principle, like winner takes all principle. So it's like we started like a number of years ago doing more and more Boxwood. There was a need for it. We were pretty good at it and we followed through. And then that led to more. So mm. that principle, I guess, is a phenomenon. People that do 
And then there are, you know, firms, landscape architecture firms often start out doing residential and then gradually they do larger scale, civic, public. There's sometimes a progression in someone's career <laughs> of specialization. Maybe they want to go a certain direction and then other careers, it's people do, do like a native wildlife garden and that's what they've always wanted to do. And they're, and they continue to do that. So if you are a garden enthusiast and you're looking for more more information. I mean, there's everything from watching a show on HGTV that's garden focused and taking tips. I mean, that would be like me watching. Uh, I think there was a show on PBS called like Sh- Great Chefs, Great Cities. Oh. I can still remember the theme song. <laughs> and I think that show taught me how to make caramel. And, you know, I've that's, <laughs> don't burn it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you're, you don't quite have a recipe, but you kind of watch somebody do it. You know what goes into it. And lo and behold, I was able to make caramel. And so there's a way of kind of being an enthusiast and learning a little bit. Same with something like listening to this podcast. And then there are, I suppose, different courses that you can take. So what are some of the distinctions among going from an enthusiast inching your way toward being a professional? I'm thinking like Master Gardener, oh, uh, sure. the, the botanical gardens that you talked about. In some regions, there's a community college. That's a great way. That's uh, I was in illustration, advertising, and I... That was in like in the 90s, like the latter half of the 90s. And I started to take classes. I had, be, I had developed an interest in landscape. I remember one of the first classes, I think it was landscape architecture history. It was a survey, you know, of like back to uh, BCE, you know. So that's often a, like an entry point. Like when, when, when people approach us and they say, oh, I'm, I, I want to change careers or maybe just, it's a young person they're interested which happens more often than, well, it happens a lot. I mean, our <laughs> listeners might be able to relate, but yeah, it, it's not uncommon. And especially to be drawn to something like the, the landscape field, because it's so, as you said, restorative, that getting to be in the landscape is so restorative and people are drawn to that after, you know, intensive careers. Right. So taking a class, just seeing, is this for you? Mm-hmm. So I took, just as an example, I think it was a history of landscape architecture. And then I took some other classes at the New York Botanic Garden. So I could have continued. There's a horticultural degree, I believe, there. Mm-hmm. Then there's a landscape design certification. And so those, those are intensive. It's a lot of work. And it goes on. It's going to take you multiple years to complete it. There are other schools across the country and other countries that would have similar. There's a unique program at, at Longwood Gardens that's in Pennsylvania. And so that's almost one of a kind. And so within that region of Pennsylvania, there's Chanticleer, there's some other gardeners, other gardens, and where there's garden training programs. I'm not sure if it's accredited or not, but it's very well respected. And so you could become, if you wanted to get into public horticulture, let's mm-hmm. say, and your dream is to work at the Denver Botanic Gardens or, or a park in Chicago, you could go that route. And and all we mean by accreditation is like, would it call, qualify for college credits through a state board of accreditation, right. as opposed to being, you know, excellent education that is giving you the skills that you need. Like, it it's accredited. not to suggest that they're not at that level. Right. Um, and my understanding about master gardener programs is that they're often, I can't say if they're like supported by states or counties, but the intention is to help people locally be almost ambassadors of the gardening culture within community so that you're able to not really endorse anything specifically, but kind of help educate people about best practices. Right. I mean, a different, like we spent time in New York, we spent time in Texas. So both those states, they have more or less 
like suggested plant lists. They said, you know, these are native plants we suggest. These are other plants, maybe not native, but they're not harmful. They're uninvasive. These are best practices in your landscape, no matter what scale it is. And a master gardener would have gone through the training of all those basic areas, ecology, soil, plants, runoff, rain gardens. And they could be, it's, it's really like a grassroots program where like boots on the, on the ground, you know, to be at civic events, be at public events. There's often, remember when I lived in Brooklyn, there was a, a garden hotline back when, you know, everything was, you had to dial a certain number at a certain time to call somebody, but it was movie phone. Movie phone. <laughs> Why don't you just tell me what you want to see? <laughs> and so there is, that still occurs. Like there's, you know, in New York state, there's Cornell is the cooperative extension. So mm-hmm. more, most counties would have that. And you can call a number and say, my azalea, you know, the leaves are turning yellow. I don't or it's, you can call in with questions. I've even seen master naturalist programs, which sounds great. So if oh. you're, if you're a landscape enthusiast, but not of the gardening variety, you could, you could check out programs like that in order to be expert in the native, you know, ecology of your region. That would I mean, be there, there are pretty well-known designers and landscape architects that came to it. It's not something you necessarily come to at an early age. The people that I meet that do it as, at un, as undergraduates, many of them are enthusiastic, very skilled people that come to it later in life. My experience, like I, like I did tend to be even more enthusiastic mm-hmm. and that, that you can sort of morph into the career people that start practicing and they're not licensed initially, but they work toward it. Well, and it's interesting to me that you didn't have, you did not have to go for an undergraduate degree in the field to then get admitted to a graduate program. So you did have a design background, which I'm sure was helpful for making the transition. What was that like? Were they asking if you had even gardening experience or what, what sort of are the, the, what are they looking for in terms of people to go into this as a profession? If you, if you haven't decided you wanted to do it as an undergrad. Oh, good question. So, well, there are sometimes prerequisites that you have to make sure that you have. So for the landscape architecture masters, I had to, sit by, I had to submit my undergraduate transcripts, transcripts. I didn't have to take any additional classes. I think you, I had to submit a portfolio. So if you didn't have a portfolio, maybe you were an accounting major or liberal arts, you'd want to come up with one. And so they would give you guidelines. They'd say, we want three still lives and one landscape and a self-portrait. Do so you have to show some artistic aptitude? Right. And well, okay. the, I mean, I've been on, in the position where I have reviewed portfolios before. If someone, you can see that if someone is enthusiastic and they're trying, these, most of these programs, are, they are pretty open-minded. So it's not that you need to be Michelangelo or Marie Cassatt you know, to, to get admitted. <laughs> if you show the ability to communicate, and that can be taught too, you know, drawing you can improve on. But so a portfolio or a design program would be important. And for some of the horticultural and the other degrees, the earth sciences, or there's probably even a more contemporary term than that, there would be a, that, that would be a prerequisite, that you'd had some science. Great. Anything else to add about the professions that are involved in the creation and care of landscapes? Well, let's see. We, you know, we mentioned in, the, in our pre-meeting about the, the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, all those, you know, really special parks that were created was during the Great Depression. There was a lack of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so under FDR, they, they, they more or less created jobs. And so on the, the Cultural Landscape Foundation's website, when you look up Works Progress Administration, WPA, 
which is the 1930s, there's probably about a dozen parks, uh, which are throughout the United States, which were created during that period. And I suppose what made me think about that was it was another example of almost like a utilitarian landscape, like a bridge that you drive across to get to a waterfall in Oregon or something. Mm -hmm. And yet there is an aesthetic beauty that was invested in these civil projects. And so there was clearly the hand of a designer and of engineers. Like it's, you almost, well, I, I almost forget the, the many hands that have gone into this almost humble bridge that was a part of this country's history. And yet is this really kind of magnificent collaboration as we've already sort of alluded to. Right. And then even like within the WPA, there's, we found out there's a WPA rustic architecture, which is often, they're often taking local materials. Like in New York state, there's upstate New York, there's Letchworth Park, Stony Brook, and then there's all the parks on Long Island, you know, that I've grown up being familiar with. So those are often WPA. There's, it's, there's a real authenticity that it's, it's a functional building. It's a Mm -hmm. bathhouse where you're going to change and it's made with the local stones. It's humble, rustic, authentic. It's one of my favorite landscape aesthetics. And I don't know if that is, it may even be because it's associated with those places that you visit and have these, you know, family memories like Glacier National Park. And so you sort of grow up with this being the vernacular of mm-hmm. family vacations. Right. <laughs> There's something so special about then seeing that when you visit a park whether it's in Glacier, Montana, or Letchworth, New York, or you know Multnomah Falls in Oregon, there's like this common vernacular across the United States that was developed at this time. It's really special. Mm-hmm. And were there any named architects that you could find? Not I mean, that I could find. I mean, there were add that to our landscape. show notes if we can come up with it. Yeah, the landscape architecture or the Cultural Landscape Foundation. In some of the parks, they'll cite like some of the original designers, but when the park was created, they were creating a design, you know, from a previous period. Yeah. So some of that, I guess it was a different era. You know, there's a term, a star architect as a star architect or star designer, which I don't know if that's good or not necessarily good or bad, but some of these early area eras that didn't occur to a good extent. And there was Frank Lloyd Wright that was like, the, you know, <laughs> like the world's biggest self-promoter, mm. but, but a lot of these, it was. Someone doing like humble service, creating something that's timeless and it's somewhat anonymous. I mean, it's, I'm sure there's institutions where you could, you could find out, but it's not readily available. Great. Well, we'll link to the information that we can find in our show notes and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Any parting thoughts? I guess it's good to ask questions too. You know, go to, there's often, if there's going to be a new park or development in your area, there's often a public meeting Mm. and you can meet these local architects, landscape architects, designers, or when you visit a public park, there's often someone working there. And it might be a horticulturalist. And you could say, oh, I'd like to volunteer to find out more. And at these same places, these folks would give, uh, would often give a talk. You know, it might be a Saturday at two o'clock. And the person that's working in that garden is explaining the seasonal transition of the flowers and the foliage. So there's, in the Rochester Park System, Rochester, New York, that's an Olmsted Park System. And there's great education there where there's a sign that explains who designed it, all the thought, the history. So there's... Ask know, questions, read signs. Right. Yeah. Celebrate. <laughs> yeah. Celebrate the past. Yeah. Amen. Great. Well, we are looking forward to 
putting together our, our next episode, our next couple of episodes. We're going to probably focus on edible gardens and holiday plants that feature in the holidays of the mm-hmm. great <laughs> you know, cultures of the world. As you might guess, we're sort of inching our way toward the holidays here in the United States. And so those themes are very much on our minds. Mm-hmm. If there's any feedback you'd like to give us, you can always drop us a note at connect at kinggardeninc.com. Visit kinggardeninc.com and you'll find our podcast page, including our show notes. And we're working on getting transcripts if you'd like to read over any of the episodes. So be on the lookout for that as well. And we thank you very much for joining us today. We hope this was of interest. Um, It was certainly fun to research it and present it. We encourage you to rate and review us too. That helps others find us. Absolutely. Yeah. Suggest us to someone you think might enjoy it. Rate and review and let us know how we're doing. We do look forward to feedback. We certainly love garden questions. Mm -hmm. And if there are any great garden pictures you'd like to share with us to share with our other listeners, feel free to do that as well. So that's it. We hope you get out in the landscape sometime soon. And until next time. Thank you. 